welcome to Reason for Hope. I am your co-host today, filling in for Dave Robson. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I'm in studio with Pastor Scott Richards and Pastor Sean Richards. How are you, gentlemen? We're doing great. Good, good, good. Well, this is <laughs> Speaking a... Speaking for the both of us. Yes. I, I didn't want to, anyone to think I was using the royal we there or something. <laughs> we are not amused. <laughs> well, well, Sean looks uh, pretty lively today, too, sporting the... The pillow hair and all that great stuff. <laughs> it's the famous 245 air conditioning system. You don't have to use your AC. Just have two windows down and go 45, and the cool air is a way of finding its way to your face. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so that tip had no additional charge on the program yeah, today. Yeah, <laughs> that's free. That's a free one there. But uh, we're so glad to be here today. This is a uh, weekday, every day. Bible Answer Program, where you can uh, join us live online and ask questions about the Bible, about how to apply certain passages to your life, or perhaps questions just about the Christian worldview in general. Perhaps you've wondered, uh, how do, do I have good reasons to believe that God exists, or can I really trust that the Bible has been preserved through time? So many questions and uh, like that and many more that we would love for you to ask us here on the program. And there are multiple ways you can do that. If you want to join us online, you can go to our Facebook page, which is uh, our handle is at CCF Tucson. So if you go to Facebook.com and uh, join us live, we live stream every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We're here in southern Arizona, and we're live streaming from our studio here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And you can also um, <clears throat> watch the program on YouTube and our Hopes would be that if you enjoy the content that we produce, that you would subscribe and you would hit that notification bell. We not only live stream this program and take people's questions live from these various platforms, we also live stream all of our services throughout the week onto these platforms. So if you're interested in joining us um, for a Sunday service or a weekday, we have uh, services on Wednesday evenings, we would welcome you. If you want to uh, join us on YouTube, you can do so at A Reason for Hope 546. That's our YouTube handle. We are also posting this program on Rumble. We haven't live streamed there yet, but we hope to do so soon. But if you do happen to catch us on Rumble, please follow. Uh, just look for A Reason for Hope on Rumble, and you can find us there. We also live stream if you want to avoid those social media platforms and you just kind of don't, you just don't want to have a, the tweeters or the YouTubers or the Facebookers, uh, you can go to our website, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, and you can hit that Watch Live tab, and you can watch all our services, including this program, A Reason for Hope, and not only watch, but you can chat, you can ask questions, you can make prayer requests, so we'd encourage you to do that if that is something you would prefer to do. Of course, we have an app that you can watch all our services, even archived messages that we've taught. Our pastor, Scott, teaches book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse throughout the entire Word of God. So if you have, even have a question about a, a passage that you would like to see, well, has Pastor Scott taught on that? And <laughs> chances are there, there is. So if you download our app, if you go to the Apple or Google Play Store, you can download the, the Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson app. And on there, you can not only get involved with uh, current events here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, but you can also go through each book of the Bible and listen to messages pertaining to a specific passage. 
that app is also really nifty in that it has a digital Bible where you can leave notes, you can create and join chat groups, and so much more. So we'd encourage you to download that. Um, we also have all our services, including this program, live stream to uh, all the Amazon Fire and Roku channels. So you can add our channel to those devices if you have one of those. And finally, if you want to ask a question for us to handle on this program, and you kind of want to maybe do it anonymously or the old-fashioned way via email, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out for those of you listening on the radio at gmail.com. And, of course, in studio, as I said, we have Pastor Scott Richards today, and I would encourage you to follow him on his Twitter feed so you can tweet your questions out if you'd like or if you just want to follow some current events, uh, what's going on uh, uh, in the world stage as it pertains to Bible prophecy and so much more. So we'd encourage you to follow Pastor Scott Richards at ScottR4H. That's on Twitter. And uh, with that, we would love to start taking your questions. So before we do that, let's take a moment to ask the Lord to bless our time and speak through us today. Would you like to do that, Sean? Absolutely. Get closer to the mic so we can all get in on this. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to not only speak your word, but your heart. My father and I, the attitude that not only reflects yours, but the ability to share the wisdom that only you can give. We're open and available to see what you have to do today, and we hope that it will be glorifying to you. We trust that your word's not going to return void and ask that that's what would be shared. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 That is true. So, do we have any introductory topic that we want to cover before we get to the actual questions? Well, a couple of updates. We've been following along the uh, story of the uh, Russian, uh, or the uh, drone attack on uh, the Kremlin uh, that took place uh, earlier this week, and another one that took place uh, last week. Uh, it turns out uh, that uh, some uh, additional intelligence has been surfacing about these particular drone attacks. And as you would probably imagine, if uh, you're uh, there in the Kremlin, uh, you know, they would probably think through security issues a little bit more thoroughly than you or I would. Uh, and obviously, the possibility of a drone attack on the Kremlin is something that their security has probably worked out. And so uh, they have all kinds of countermeasures in place that will take out the average drone. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, they have uh, electronics that will jam the GPS of a drone uh, so it is no longer able to be controlled and, and so on. Uh, the interesting thing uh, that they've discovered then about this, uh, these drones that actually hit the Kremlin uh, is that, uh, first of all, uh, they were not GPS-controlled drones. Uh, they were what they would call suicide drones. In other words, they were on a one-way trip. The other interesting thing about these particular drones is because they were not GPS-oriented, that meant that, that their point of origin had to be somewhere in the area around Moscow uh, in order for an individual to manually control uh, these drones on their mission. Uh, they would have to have a fairly limited range. And, and so the idea that somehow... Uh, someone in the Ukraine launched these drones, they made their way and wove through all the uh, Russian defenses and somehow uh, made it to the Kremlin. Uh, they've been able to rule that out. Now, since these drones originated inside Russian territory, that leaves a couple of options. Uh, one would be that, say, uh, Ukrainian uh, secret uh, service people or, or uh, CIA equivalents, um, commandos, you name it, 
uh, had somehow infiltrated and then launched the drones from some position just outside of Moscow to accomplish this, or uh, perhaps uh, because of all the uh, turmoil that is in Moscow right now regarding Vladimir Putin and his conduct of this war, uh, Russia is very divided over uh, the lack of progress and uh, even the intention uh, that was involved with invading Ukraine right now. It's really kind of turned into a, a slog and, and uh, you know, just a quagmire for them. Uh, that uh, there may have been some within Russia that uh, wanted to take things into their own hands and uh, facilitate regime change on their own. Which one is it? We really don't know. Uh, the uh, interesting thing is that uh, the Russian charge that this was somehow done uh, by the United States uh, doesn't really seem to hold a whole lot of water unless it was United States uh, commandos or special forces uh, that launched these particular drones. I think that's very unlikely because the payload of these drones was very, very small, almost inc inconsequential uh, as far as it being actually able to do any damage. I mean, imagine if one flew in you and hit you, it could probably do some damage to you personally, but uh, probably very not very likely. So uh, once again, a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, stirring up and a lot of, uh, of uh, 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 controversy that kind of signifies nothing uh, when it's all said and done. It's just a, uh, a very volatile part of the world. And uh, as a result, uh, anything along these lines can be used as a pretext for either side to be able to uh, continue to prosecute the war as they see fit. Uh, another very interesting story, though, on uh, the Jerusalem Post today. Uh, apparently, uh, the U.S. National Security Advisor uh, made a couple of different statements. First of all, the idea that uh, President Joe Biden would not meet with uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, they felt that that uh, snub was overblown, uh, that there were other uh, ways to be able to communicate aside from a face-to-face -face visit, although it sounds a little bit like they're covering up there. But also a very interesting statement being made uh, by the United States that Israel has full freedom, according to the United States, to act against an Iranian nuclear threat as they see fit. Uh, now, what that means exactly, we aren't sure. Does that mean that the United States is going to, is going to provide, uh, for instance, uh, the material support, including uh, refueling for Israeli planes to carry out a mission to take out? Uh, Iranian nuclear facilities, if uh, in fact they are getting close to the bomb. Uh, we saw earlier this week that the uh, head of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, made the statement that according to their intelligence, uh, Iran now has enough enriched uranium, uh, not just to make one uh, nuclear weapon, but five. Uh, so uh, things definitely heating up as far as that's, uh, that's concerned. Uh, and uh, another very interesting story, and we'll follow this and see what comes of it. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, visiting Israel, made a statement that he believes the Biden administration is going to make a major push to uh, put the last piece of the puzzle in as far as the Abraham Accords are concerned, bringing Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accords. Now, I'm very skeptical about that in that uh, Saudi Arabia has just recently uh, concluded a peace treaty brokered by Chairman Xi of uh, Communist China uh, with the Iranians themselves. So the idea of uh, any kind of advantage for the Saudis in that, uh, that arena, probably not super likely. 
there are also some stories about how uh, Israel and the European Union are entering into uh, talks about how to achieve some kind of a regional peace plan. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, again, uh, these sort of things have been suggested many, many times before. Uh, scripturally, prophetically, uh, we know that the only one who's going to be able to pull off a regional peace plan in that uh, area, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, is the Antichrist when he comes to power. He's going to make a strong covenant with many uh, that will allow Israel to be able to rebuild their temple in its historic site. Uh, that is how he's going to be able to take away sacrifice and offering at the midway point of the last seven years, known as the tribulation period. So uh, could be some greasing of the wheels uh, moving in that direction, uh, putting some of the infrastructure in place, uh, almost like a lot of the uh, things that we see about technology these days, a uh, number of articles about uh, the danger of uh, artificial intelligence have been running in the news. Some have wondered, well, is AI uh, going to be uh, the image of the beast uh, that uh, you know, is able to speak and, and think and, and so on? Possible, but uh, you know, that, that there could be something along that line. But we really see in Revelation chapter 13 that it is not going to be a technological breakthrough that allows this to happen. It's going to be something supernatural that happens that is going to absolutely uh, boggle the minds of the entire world. And so I just think um, having a, a chat bot that says, hey, go persecute Christians, uh, it's not going to be all that impressive to the average person. I think there's something far greater uh, in view there in Revelation chapter 13. But uh, we'll keep an eye on these particular uh, issues and let you know if there's any further developments. Now, just for background clarity, you know, this is pretty serious for Iran to have enough uranium, enriched uranium to have five nuclear weapons. Haven't they declared that they want to destroy and wipe Israel off the map? And uh, us. Yeah. yeah. Well, every Friday. Yeah. <coughs> well, do you want to uh, elaborate on that? As soon as the camera can. Okay, there we go. So <laughs> when we're talking about the question of whether or not it's something to be concerned about for Iran, obviously we know that Iran's not going to successfully nuke Israel off of the map because God still has plans there, and we can count on that as reliable. <laughs> However, we aren't given the same sort of promises, which is why we need to take this matter seriously and can seriously say our administration isn't going to do anything about it. There's three general theories as to why the United States isn't mentioned in biblical prophecy. Joel Rosenberg and others who are being proven more and more likely uh, now than ever is the idea that the United States will be taken out in a limited nuclear war. We see that if Iran is left unchecked, we are the great Satan in their eyes, so we would be first on their target list. And anyone by the way, who has basically taken back formerly occupied Muslim lands. The second target, of course, being Israel is a non-starter since there is a extremely or an extremely sacred Muslim site at that place, which even ironically, according to Muslim tradition, wasn't even built until 60 years after Muhammad's death, yet he has a vision of him visiting it uh, around I think 30 or so years before that event fortunately took place. So when we're talking about these areas of concern that people have, the first thing to keep in mind is that the United States has given no promises of security, longevity, or the kind of uh, certainty as far as their future is concerned that the nation of Israel has. That's the bad news. The good news is there are other options on the table in noting that with the United States being among one of the most 
populated nations in terms of Christians and their ability to freely exercise their religion they're in for now. We know that were the rapture of the church to take place, we would be one of the probably top four nations most affected by that as far as our infrastructure is concerned. That's also a possibility. But the third and most optimistic option as far as the United States future, bar and sans Iran, is the idea that, of course, we are no longer the economic and military superpower that we once were, that even though we have the technology and that we have our 100,000 manned soldiers ready at any time, uh, our interests seem to be more in terms of... uh, well, you can't even call it political because no one's really buying this as far as the populace is concerned, but the idea of showcasing and virtue signaling and opposing everything that has to do with the gospel and I'll be even say it, basic human biology. So as we see the United States step into the realm of non-relevancy. We also need to understand that we need to be aware of the fact and not hold God to promises he never made in terms of the fact that we have enemies, and these enemies are more than willing to basically set us down a path of world-level destruction because of the words of a false prophet, which is why we want to share God's word with you, because beliefs do have consequences, and any regime that would be motivated to enact nuclear war, regardless of the impact it would have on its own citizens, is appalling. But it's also worth noting as well that Iran would be one of the top four nations most affected by the rapture of the church as well, because incredible revival is happening there, as well as other areas throughout the world. So know that God's still working. Know that even without the United States, that God will still be working, and that as we are given this opportunity to serve him today, we need to treat it as if our, it's going to be our last, because whether the Lord comes back for us or we are in a, a very bright and immediate flash of light taken up to him, these are all very real possibilities and stuff that we don't want to fearmonger about but need to realistically understand are on the table, especially during the time of this season we find ourselves in history. Hmm. Wow. <clears throat> Thank you, Sean. Yep. There you go. <laughs> I guess I get uh, a little special privilege that I can ask a question and uh, skip the line. <laughs> yeah, there you Speaking go. Speaking of the line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's uh, let's dive in. <clears throat> so picking up from, I believe, yesterday, uh, Yari uh, wanted to know, what denomination is the true denomination? My pastor said that there were no Pentecostals. Non-Pentecostals. There, there were no non there were no non pentecostals <clears throat> in the early church and encourages speaking in tongues is this accurate given how the modern pentecostal movement defines and practices tongues yeah we can divvy that question up first of all when people say well there's tons of christian denominations and there's no actual defined standard for what christianity is they all claim to be the true christianity which church is the real church if you have the truth why is it you seem to disagree on everything the question's a non-starter because in every single christian denomination there are four things more actually, but we'll narrow it down to four for the sake of time, that we all agree on, and those things that we agree on are what make us Christian. What defines a denomination is the secondary practices and, uh, I guess, traditions that oftentimes accompany the history of a church, but in no way compromise these four core claims. If you deny any of them, then you're not a 
denomination to begin with, let alone a Christian. First, the deity of Christ, that Christianity, apart from every other religion on the planet, affirms specifically that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ, and that through him we have a proper revelation of who God is. That's why Christian is in our ledger and in our name. The second is the nature of the Trinity, that we don't just say Jesus as God came to this world, but God the Son specifically. When Jesus revealed to us who God was like, and given the revelation of the God of Israel throughout history, we see that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct from one another, which we have a question on that we'll get into in a moment, and yet able to function as that one monotheistic, meaning one God, deity. And that is, of course, something unique to Christianity as well pagan groups that would have three gods that are similar in traits don't claim a trinity because of the number three. The first tenet of the trinity is monotheism, but we also affirm that Pentecostal or not, if Jesus is God, that we also wonder when he prayed to the Father, was he praying to himself or a separate person from himself? And that's affirmed in Luke 22, I believe verse 42. Uh, Yes, 2242. The third thing that every Christian denomination will agree on is the nature of salvation, that we are saved by grace, God's goodness, not our own, through faith and affirmation of something is true, trusting something with reason. That's where that word means and comes from. And anyone that would deny that are stepping into the territory of what we would call a cult not a Christian group, even though they would claim the name of Christ, if they deny what Christ said about how we get to heaven, then everything that we do in his name is ultimately fruitless because we're misrepresenting him. We're not Christians if we deny our Lord's words. And then finally, where did we get all this information from? The Bible, the collection of 66 books, Old and New Testament, that have been recognized as divinely inspired scripture that God didn't possess these people and make them type out these words, but literally breathed and spoke through these men using their backgrounds, their personalities, their understanding of the world in order to accurately communicate truth and a revelation about who God is, what he intends to do in the present, what he's done in the past, and even what he intends to do in the future. If a church, a Christian church, denies the Bible, denies the deity of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, or the nature of salvation, they're not a denomination. They're not even Christian. But if, on the other hand, a denomination affirms those four things and encourages, you mentioned Pentecostalism, the free exercise of spiritual gifts. Well, we would have some questions about that, which we'll get into in a second, but we wouldn't say as long as they affirm those four things that it's a, quote, salvation issue, unquote. Also note that when groups, say for instance, uh, from a Lutheran background, would encourage the commentaries of Luther, Calvinists would emphasize the sovereignty of God, our our minions uh, would encourage the uh, free will of man and so forth. These are all secondary issues, traditions, doctrines that can be sorted out at later times, but insofar as they don't compromise those four things, they're affirming the truth claims of Christianity and therefore are Christian. What denomination is true? The denomination, the group, that is Christian, that affirms the core claims, the truth claims of Christianity. If you're Pentecostal and you affirm those four things, I call you my brother. If you call yourself a Christian and deny any of those things, you're deceiving yourself. Now, this is where we get into territory that's going to ruffle some feathers. Uh, We 
know Yari's background and the pastor that he's speaking of and his definition of the spiritual gift of tongues, which by the way, the gift of tongues, just at face value, we affirm that does exist in the Bible. That is something that the Holy Spirit can do through his people, 1 right. Corinthians 12. Sure. <clears throat> sure. But uh, when, 1 Corinthians 14 is largely devoted to it. So, yeah, and yeah. defining its proper yeah. use. And yeah. noting 12 notes that that is one of the ways that he manifests his gifts. It's the second to last, but that's another issue. When we're talking about how the modern Pentecostal movement defines it, where you just say random words, that you uh, speak your quote-unquote prayer language, and then you make sense of it to God, you're not speaking an actually defined language. There's no interpreter. You're just making sounding brass and clanging cymbals, meaningless noise. Is that actually the gift of tongues, and is that the kind of tongues that was given to us in the early church, Acts chapter 2? Well, a couple of insights into that. First of all, it does seem that there are two aspects of the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, When we see, for instance, at Pentecost, where uh, the, the gift of tongues is first practiced, uh, it was definitely known languages. Uh, individuals that were present there could speak those languages and understand what was being said. They were declaring the awesome works of God. Uh, the, uh, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, as we mentioned, uh, we get uh, a, a really good, uh, I guess, owner's manual, if you will, of uh, what the gift of tongues is all about. And it does appear from passages in uh, 1 Corinthians 14 especially, that uh, the gift of speaking in tongues is, uh, first of all, a devotional gift. Uh, some people say, well, I just don't believe that it's uh, there to be a prayer language. But uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 13, we are told, therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Well, that seems pretty open and shut to me about the idea that there are some people that do receive a prayer language, if you will, where they can express themselves uh, spiritually to God. Uh, Paul says, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. I also sing with the understanding. And he goes on from there. Uh, He says that in the church, uh, as far as the public church is concerned, He said, uh, I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in church I would rather speak five words with my understanding. I may teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he's saying that there's a time and a place. Uh, The majority of the expression of the gift of speaking in tongues is given to an individual to be able to express their heart directly to God in a significant way. However, there's also an aspect of the gift of speaking in tongues that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14 that does speak to the idea of uh, a uh, evangelistic gift, for lack of a better term. Uh, in verse 20, we read, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. And the law is written, With men of other tongues and, lips and uh, other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So uh, this gift of speaking in tongues being a sign. Well, the uh, quotation uh, that the apostle makes from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, talks about how when northern Israel would hear the Assyrians at their walls, 
and uh, would, uh, would uh, not recognize the language as they were spoken, that this would be a sign to them of God's judgment. Well, Paul says it goes deeper than that. Uh, the gift of speaking in tongues, particularly manifested at Pentecost, was a heavenly heads up to the people of Israel that another judgment was in the offing because they had rejected Messiah. They needed to receive the Messiah or there would be consequences. Jesus warned about in uh, his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 that the temple would be destroyed and such it was. But uh, the idea that uh, speaking in tongues could have an evangelistic uh, impact on people, well, we see it certainly did at Pentecost. Uh, We've shared before some uh, experiences that we've had uh, in afterglow settings where an individual would lead out in tongues, uh, speak some words, didn't understand what they were saying, but a person there who spoke the language uh, heard what they were saying and were uh, duly impressed by all of that. So there is that uh, evangelistic aspect of it all. There is a devotional aspect. There is a public aspect because in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14, we're told, how is it then, brethren, when you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let each be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. So, you know, one of the things that I find a little disturbing about some of the modern tongues movement things is that uh, generally the way it works is you get a group of people together, they all start speaking in tongues you know, 100 people all at once, then things calm down, and then someone offers an interpretation, which is more like a word of prophecy than telling uh, somebody what someone prayed to God. So I think it's kind of out of line in a couple of ways in most of the situations uh, that I've seen. So uh, the most important thing that we need to understand is some people will say, well, you know, I just couldn't help myself. You know, the Spirit came upon me, and I just had to blurt out uh, these words. Well, we're told Uh, in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 14, that the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So if someone says, I couldn't help it, well, that's not the spirit, that's them. They lacked self-control and kind of made a spectacle of themselves. Uh, the, The bottom line, though, is this. The last lines of 1 Corinthians 14 say this, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, speaking to men for edification, exhortation, and comfort, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. That's the sweet spot we want to hit. Uh, We don't want to forbid speaking in tongues. God gives someone the gift and the ability to be able to do that. Uh, They should be able to exercise it, but it should be done decently and in order. What order? In the order that we are given in the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. If we go outside those boundaries and say, oh, well, I was being led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will never lead contrary to the truths we find in God's Word. So if you have the gift of speaking in tongues uh, and you want to make sure you're exercising it properly, become an expert on 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Chuck Smith wrote a great book called Living Water where he goes into some detail about all of this. And I found it to be one of the most helpful books on uh, the ministry and gifts of the Holy Spirit I've ever read. Very solid, very biblically balanced. You can go ahead and get it on Amazon or um, you know, any of the, uh, the websites that are out there that make that available. Hmm. That's great. Thank you. Now, we're, now when, they, when that part in 1 Corinthians 14 mentions they do not speak to men but to God, <clears throat> isn't that portion how some pastors... 
um, justify the ongoing speaking in tongues where everyone's doing it because now we're in our private prayer language. Is that typically the passage, the part of the passage they go to that it's okay to do that as long as you're speaking to God and not to people? Well, in disruption I, <laughs> of the church service, that's the reason why he read 1 Corinthians 14. But I, I'm not even really sure they go there all that much. It's just mm. they do this. Mm. And when you say, well, how does this line up, you know, for instance, with how the public's practice of speaking in tongues, two or at the most three, each in turn, and with an interpretation. Mm. If there's no interpreter, the, the person is to speak to God and himself. Mm. In other words, uh, to speak in the spirit, you know, to speak with your understanding, but not out loud. You know, uh, one of the reasons that, uh, that we don't encourage, say, free participation in uh, speaking in tongues, say, in, in our worship service, is because, for instance, when God's word is being taught, if someone stands up and speaks in tongues, they're out of line because the gift of prophecy is what the Lord is using at that particular mm. time. We want to do things decently mm. and in order. Uh, the other thing that we really want to guard against is, you know, in a small group where you do have the opportunity to be able to wait for an interpretation and so on, uh, these sort of things, these afterglow settings, if you will, are a great opportunity to be able to practice these gifts. But, uh, you know, one of the things that Paul warned about in uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is he said, uh, again, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in somewhere uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say you're out of your mind? So, you know, Paul was trying to guard against that because uh, one of the things that we discover with, you know, free expression, open participation is that uh, we can't bring the church service to a grinding halt and do an in-depth study on the gift of speaking in tongues when we're trying to teach, say, for instance, through the book of Acts at this particular time. So, uh, you know, I just think if we read the instructions, when all else fails, read the instructions. And the instructions that we find in 1 Corinthians 14, very specific, uh, very difficult to avoid as far as mm. how to best practice these sort of things. Now, can we disagree about that and still be believers in Christ? Yeah. Um, I would never say to somebody uh, that uh, the, uh, the essence of the Christian faith is believing there's one God, that he's triune, that salvation by grace through faith, the Bible is his inspired and errant word, uh, Jesus coming back in. Oh, and by the way, you've got to speak in tongues properly. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it's an important issue, but it's not an essential. It's almost like our views on biblical prophecy. Important? Yes. But uh, people can get their, you know, for lack of a better term, eschatology wrong, and still be genuine born-again Christians. So we can so. debate these things in a spirited manner, but not divide over them. Yeah, <laughs> but we will draw firm lines in the sand, so to speak, if someone is proclaiming something in the name of God that goes directly <clears throat> against his word, and that they would use passages either out of context or eisegetically and commit the sin of false prophecy, which is a sin. Now, when people would say, well, they're attributing to the Holy Spirit things that don't belong to him, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. No, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit's rejecting his primary purpose, the convicting work of the Spirit. It's not a salvation issue, but it is misleading. 
it is dishonest. It's misrepresenting mm. God, which any believer, which I believe you are, by the way, my Pentecostal brothers and sisters, are doing and mm. are still in. So mm. remember the difference. If we're correcting you on this, it's because we both love the truth. If we want to accept this correction, then at least be willing to stand or fall on the shared authority of Scripture, which going back to the first question, denominationally, we both agree. Mm. We just need to be more consistent in how we handle and <clears throat> practice it, even when it seems fun. And, and uh, bringing it back around to the question about denominations, you know, one of the questions that always comes up is, well, if Christianity is the truth, why are there so many denominations out there? You know, you'd think you'd be able to agree on things. Well, that used to be a kind of a, a question I used to uh, try to stump Christians with before I got saved, and a lot of hemming and hawing would, would ensue. Until uh, after I got saved, I realized something about denominations. Denominations... Uh, agree on the vast majority of the Christian faith. But the thing that makes a denomination a denomination is because they will lay stress on a particular area of doctrine in the Christian faith. Great example of this, Baptists. Mm. Why do we call them Baptists <laughs> as opposed to anything else? Or, you know, Bible thumpers or whatever, you know. Well, we call them Baptists because Baptist churches came out of a movement of God that emphasized believers' baptism. In other words, it wasn't infant baptism. It was the, when you received Christ, you needed to follow up and make a public declaration of your faith through water baptism. Mm -hmm. And so they would lay great stress upon that doctrine, so much so they became, they were referred to as Baptists. The Baptists actually draw their roots to an earlier group called the Anabaptists, which uh, was a group, Menno Simons and a number of people like that, uh, that taught that if you were baptized as an infant, you didn't get a chance to make that decision. You needed to be baptized again, the uh, Greek uh, participle Anna uh, there, uh, I should say uh, preposition Anna there, uh, means again, again baptized. So, you know, when you take a look at the Methodists, for instance, it was because John Wesley and Charles Wesley and the Methodist denomination that, that uh, emerged out of their evangelistic movement had a very methodical way of discipling new converts. You went through their material. Everyone went through their material. Very, very uh, organized as far as follow-up went. Hence the term Methodists. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's not like the Methodists, at least at their beginning, were teaching, you know, well, we've got another God over here that you don't right, worship. Yeah. You know, they're all talking about... Well, them and the Assemblies of God and the Nazarenes all came from the same movement. Yeah. They all, they're all part of the same root. Yeah. And, and yet, if you go to an Assembly of God church and a Nazarene church today, <laughs> you would think, wow, yep. you know, very, very different. But they would agree on the vast majority of essentials. So, you know, the thing that was always puzzling to me was, well, if this is the truth, why is there so much disagreement? Well, there's not disagreement, there's just points of emphasis. Mm -hmm. And if we are talking about God's truth that he's revealed to us, right? Generally speaking, people are gonna be passionate about God's truth. They're not gonna be ambivalent about it. Uh, and because they're passionate about God's truth, generally speaking, they will find areas in God's truth that they are especially passionate about. In fact, they will probably seek out other people that are just as passionate about this particular area of truth as they themselves are. Mm -hmm. Hence the rise of a denomination. 
So and, and most of the time, <clears throat> these divisions, if you can call them that, are secondary issues. Even though they are points sure. of emphasis, they're typically secondary issues. But they're the ones that we do over. tend to divide over, and and it seems like if you were to put them all on a graph, there's about two or three issues that Christians disagree on that cause these different denominations to come rise, and that is, you know, spiritual gifts and tradition so- sovereignty and yeah and tradition sovereignty yeah. and free will and yeah. those kinds of yeah. issues tend to yeah you know the other thing and, and just for clarity's sake you know we at calvary christian fellowship part of the calvary chapel movement we say we're not a denominational church people say well what does that mean well that means in essence we don't have a hq we don't have a uh, a bureaucracy that's located at one place that say owns all the property and has all the legal papers and everything like that. Every Calvary Chapel church is an independent, uh, self-governing, uh, self-maintaining church. Uh, when we started Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, I came from uh, Chuck Smith's church in, in Costa Mesa, and people uh, said, oh, well, how much did uh, Pastor Chuck uh, give you to get your church going? Did he buy you a building and all of this? And I said, no. Um, I think he put a check for $135 in our first offering, sent it to us in the mail. That was it, mm. because we believe where God guides, God provides. And, and so, you know, when we talk about not being denominational, we are an independent, Bible-believing, born-again, spirit-filled, spirit-led fellowship that uh, has a fellowship of other churches that believe the same things. Now, you know, as Pastor Chuck passed away and so on, I think you're going to see, people say, well, what's going to happen? What would happen if Chuck Smith passed on? Well, I think we've seen what has happened. Um, Basically, nothing changed as far as we were concerned because, again, we're here because we're under the authority of God's Word. We are an independent uh, church with an independent board of elders, independent, independent financial board that oversees these issues. Um, you know, we have voluntary associations uh, with churches that call themselves Calvary chapels. We have voluntary associations with churches that don't call themselves mm. Calvary chapels, but we agree on these essential things. Mm. So, um, you know, when we say we're non-denominational, it's not that we're opposed to denominations, but one of the things that happens with denominations, and, and you got to be very careful about it, is like this uh, three-generation uh, rule that uh, Chuck Smith always spoke about, that in any genuine work of God, the first generation is the ones who are on fire. They're the ones that the Lord uses in a powerful way. And then the second generation comes along and kind of builds on what the first generation did, you know, the infrastructure and the buildings and the structures and so on. Then by the third generation, you have all the goodies, but you don't have the heart of the first generation anymore. In fact, the third generation probably doesn't even believe the same things that the first mm. generation did. They're just seeking you know. to maintain what God did through the first generation in the name of the second, but yeah. it's not actually dependent on the Spirit. Which and, is and, 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 you know, when you take, for instance, I don't mean to pick on anybody, but like the United Methodist Church, uh, boy, those guys used to be the Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, you know, radical evangelicals back in the uh, 1800s, the 1900s. Uh, but now, I, I remember going to a United Methodist Church with my mom not long after I got saved. I was the only one with a Bible there, and I soon found out why. They never read the Bible. They had no use for it. 
um, the pastor would talk about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and then say, oh yes, these great philosophers had a profound influence on Jesus' thinking as he grew up. It was like, here's a guy who's missed the point entirely. So they had all the trappings of a Methodist mm -hmm. church. Uh, they had a hymnal that probably someone from the early 1900s would recognize as being a Methodist hymnal. They would sing songs that would talk about things, but the heart was mm -hmm. gone. Absolutely gone. My dad gone. was raised uh, in the Methodist church and was an atheist. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, speaking of the Calvary Chapel distinctives, I thought I'd put this up on the screen, but if you want to pick up Chuck Smith's uh, <clears throat> book called The Calvary Chapel Distinctives, this is the, the body of belief that most Calvary chapels, if you want to be a Calvary chapel, would agree on uh, voluntarily, as Scott said. And also, um, uh, I noticed here, too, I wanted to show his book, uh, Living Waters. So if you wanted to pick that up, this is a screenshot of the of the of uh, the cover. So I would encourage you to check that book out if you're interested to study further on the subject. Awesome. Go, moving on. Thank you, Scott, for that. Uh, Seven more questions, 13 more minutes. So let's get right. this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let we me, don't have uh, to get to all of them, but we'll try. We'll, we'll give <laughs> I like to get best. to more than one. Yeah. See there. Oh, there we go. Sorry. Here's a question here. Um, this is from uh, Colt, who uh, wanted to know what is the biblical definition of the Trinity. Well, it's an important question because people even either oftentimes depend on ignorance and attack a fake version of the Trinity, or they'll condemn it on the basis of something that it isn't even. And people, well-intended though they may be, may try to picture the Trinity in their mind, but it's more based on an opinion and a loose understanding of the concept of God rather than what God's actually revealed in Scripture. So let's just keep this biblical. If you want to know what the church fathers said, I would care even less than you would. If you want to know, you know, all these uh, historical muddles and associations, the only reason any of them would have any merit is whether or not it's based in the Bible. So let's skip all the boring stuff and get right to the core of what the Trinity is, where it came from, and whether or not people in history got it right or wrong. The first and most important aspect of the Trinity is that it is monotheistic. The claim, the affirmation, and the confirmation that there is one and only one God. That's why you don't see a Trinity in pagan sources, because they are polytheistic. The existence of three gods is not the definition of the Trinity. The first rule and definition of the Trinity is it's trying to to explain a phenomena at work when there is and as there is only one God. So count the first rule is also in line with its number. There is one and only one God. As far as the entities in existence that can call themselves deity, the only thing out there that truly fits that title, that type of being that it is, is one. There is one God, and we can go to many passages in Scripture. The most straightforward is Deuteronomy 6.4. Here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And even that passage has some interesting aspects to it. But let's just emphasize that at face value. Trinitarians are monotheistic, first rule. The second rule, and the second definition uh, that is necessary for the Trinity to be a thing, is the claim that there are certain things that only God, only that one God, can truthfully say about himself and be honest. Now, I can say, for instance, that I created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1 would disagree with me. I'm not God, 
God is affirmed to have been the creator of the heavens and the earth. So if then the Trinity is affirming that there is one God and there are certain things only God can truthfully say about himself, we'll just pick one for the sake of time. Creator is an exclusive claim that only the true and living God can make. If anything were to claim to have created the heavens and the earth, the universe, and of course this planet within it, they would have to be God or they would be dishonest. Now. The third principle of the Trinity, and the numbers in these, by the way, are significant. The third definition of the Trinity is that there are three distinct personages, centers of consciousness, some call them, that all are given credit for the sort of things only the one God can say. So, for instance, if we're talking about the Father as creator, in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8, what does it say? Uh, but now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are a potter, we are all the work of your hand. So a credit for creation is given to this thing called the Father. And in Jewish scripture, Person, that would yeah. be reference to who? To God. Yeah. Or rather, should I say, to what? To God. To who? The Father. But what's also interesting is that in the New Testament, in the Old as well, but I'd have to do a little bit more digging for you, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, we're told about a, another interesting figure, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invi invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, who is the him being referenced in First Corinthians, or in uh, Colossians, rather, chapter 1? That is the one who was crucified. Right. Now, do, does any Christian group, heretical or otherwise, believe that the Father was crucified? No. No. So there is an interesting dilemma here. And there's about to be a trilemma in a moment, which is what the fourth fact will verify. But note what we have building up here. Another thing, another who, is being given credit for the sort of things that only God can say about himself, and there's only one God. Notice why we had to come up with a word for this. Also note, the Holy Spirit is given credit as our creator, not just in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, where it notes he was brooding over the earth, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But it notes in Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God, Job speaking, said, made me, and the breath of the Almighty, literally Ruach, Spirit, gives me life. So credit for creation, credit is the giver of life, credit is the creator and maintainer of creation. This Spirit is noted as the creditor of all life. Yet this isn't addressed as the Son, like Jesus is. This isn't credited as the Father. This is credited as the Spirit. So, and note this, when we get to our fourth rule, what then doesn't uh, lead us to conclusions like Sibelianism, which is also called Molinism, the, her the false belief, by the way, that God just functions sometimes as a father, sometimes as a Modalism, son. not Molinism. Molinism. Modalism. <laughs> Mol I did Molinism is okay. I got <laughs> Modalism <laughs> is not. I got, <laughs> it's a different doctrine. Yeah, yeah. I got Sibelianism right, yeah, right? That's right. So we'll note that. Yeah. But when we're talking about the fourth principle, we are talking about the fact that these three who's in the one what that is God are able to exist simultaneously and act independently from one another right. while there's still only one God. Best proof text for this is in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 16 where the Lord speaking says, I have not spoken a secret from the beginning, but now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Yeah. 
note that. And another good example in the New Testament, I like to keep these things balanced, is in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9, where at Jesus' baptism, Jesus, God the Son, is being baptized. The Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, so the dove isn't being baptized. The Spirit of God's identified separate from God the Son. And then a voice from heaven, not from the dove, not from the water, from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So all able to act at the same time and independently from one another. So why is it then that we affirm that there's one God when we see three who's being at work here? Why is it that the three personages are given credit for exclusive things to God, like creating the universe? This is where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. So just to summarize, biblically, there is only one God. There are things only God can truthfully say about himself. We just mentioned one. We can mention dozens. This one God, who only can have certain things said about him, has given that credit to three persons. The titles are Father, Son, and Spirit. And in Scripture, we see Father, Son, and Spirit acting independently from one another, yet not contradicting the first three principles. So keeping all this in mind, what's the definition of the Trinity? It's a collection of truth statements, core fundamental facts about what God is and who God is, and that all being affirmed as true in Scripture. So when we're talking about this issue, make sure that you keep these things all in mind. Does the Trinity make sense biblically? Yes, it comes from that. But if on the other hand we get caught up in the weeds of, well, how do you explain it? We talked about this in one of our uh, Point of Light studies. Can you explain the Trinity or can you biblically define it? There is a difference. Right. Right. Uh, you know, again, it reminds me of that uh, uh, same uh, famous line from A Princess Bride. Let me explain. No, there's too much. <laughs> Let me summarize. <laughs> uh, that, that's what the Trinity is. It's shorthand for a number of uh, biblical statements about God that, uh, that, again, we have to hold intention. They don't contradict each other, but come together under this one umbrella. Do we believe in the Trinity because it's easy to believe in? No. But, uh, you know, as we mentioned in the, uh, the Reason for Hope uh, short spot, uh, stop and think about any other attribute of God you want to name. How easy it, is it for us to understand, say, that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere at once, that he is just as present and just as real and just as imminent if we were on the surface of the moon as he is where we are right now. I can't wrap my mind around that because I can only be one place mm. at one time. Uh, God's omniscience, that he knows everything. Um, I don't know everything. Sometimes the longer I go on, the less I think I really know. But God knows everything. I can't wrap my mind around that, yet I believe it. Why? Because the Bible affirms it. And if God is who he says he is, and all that kind of stands to reason, uh, don't you think, Sean, that he might have some characteristics that we as finite human beings may find a little mentally challenging? I'd say that's allowed. Yeah, I think that's expected. So... Hmm. You know, I, I just, uh, a great illustration of this is, uh, you know, they, uh, the uh, uh, Cassini probe uh, went to Saturn and got an up-close uh, look at Saturn's rings. There are all kinds of theories as to why Saturn had rings and why these rings behaved the way they did. Well, the Cassini probe showed that all the theories were wrong. And, uh, you know, the scientists looked at that and said, we have no idea what holds these things together, how they coalesce or how they interact with each other. It is just mind-blowing. And you see these pictures of Saturn's rings up close 
and uh, you know how these things operate and, and so on and uh, you know my brain just goes tilt you know I can't understand uh, that and if I can't understand some aspect of God's creation which is like nothing to him what makes me think that I can understand the essential nature of the Creator not because it's contrary to rational inquiry but it transcends our limited abilities as human beings to wrap our minds around it. And we can only yeah. go based on what is revealed in Scripture, which is not exhaustive. We just know that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. But how? <laughs> it's yeah. not exactly. And, and triune. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So hmm. there you Good go. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we got uh, time for one more. And uh, boy, here we go. Uh, David, his name was, uh, David wanted to know, when Luke records that Jesus preached the gospel in Luke 20, what was Jesus preaching? Was he telling people about his death and resurrection since it was near, or was he preaching something else? It's a good question. Yeah, um, basically at this point in Jesus' ministry, the triumphal entry has just happened. He's going into Jerusalem to prove himself to be the perfect spotless lamb. And what's important to note about that is that as he's preaching, the Pharisees are trying to contradict and conflict with him. We see them also getting fussy about this when Jesus was claiming not just to be, what, entering in the city, but when people were calling him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Messiah. The Messiah. Yeah. So note that. Yeah. When he's proclaiming his death and his resurrection, it's the same kind of controversy that he encountered with the disciples when they were upset. Let that not be said of you, Lord. So when he's preaching the gospel, like you said in 1 Corinthians 15 in your follow-up, which we'll get to next week, it was saying that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel, which I preached to you and is also preached. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. That's what Jesus was talking about. And the good news is, Jesus, God, is with us. That is the essence of it. Even the resurrection itself is a detail of that greater good news, which Jesus was sharing in Luke 20. It's a good question. Thank yeah. you, David. And yeah. thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next week, Monday. And uh, thank you for joining us. God bless you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.